Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you're going to get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Joe Fold. And I'm Martin Diego Garcia, and you can find us at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram and Threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of How to Win a Campaign, Season 4. Well, Martin, if you haven't checked out our other episodes on movement building, be sure to do so. There is a lot there, and I'm telling you, this has been a really fun season. Absolutely. We have another really interesting and near and dear topic to our heart, right? In that we we work with a couple of organizations in this space is today we're going to be discussing the process of how does a moment become a movement, right? And reveal what it takes and what it could look like for a particular moment to become an organization. And then from an organization actually transcends that boundaries and really evolves into a powerful and engaging movement. And today we're going to be talking with the executive director, Angela Farrell Zabala from uh, Moms Demand Action, who has some incredible insight on how their organization evolved. Martine, recently we've seen so many powerful movements originate from a single organization or a single moment from the ground up. And today we're really going to dig deep into what happens and explore these strategies on how tactics and how different strategies enable that shift from just a moment to become a movement. And it is, you know, again, there are barriers, frustration along the way, but it can also bring really great change and great success. Before we dig into the weeds here and talk about really how this transformation happens, Joe, could you take a quick step back and just let our listeners know exactly what we mean as we refer to when a moment becomes a movement? All right. So that could be anything from the gun violence prevention space to Black Lives Matter to Me Too, or it could be I'm lucky enough to be on the board of a local immigration nonprofit that came around the movement of Afghan refugees to the U.S. And there was a lot of change around that. So, you know, whether this is a national movement or a local catalyst that has to do with that, all of this, these moments in time can really create a transformational period where folks are like, we need to tackle this issue. We want to be a part of this movement and get into the process of making real change around an issue. Movements are really defined by shared ideals and values and beliefs that that unite these communities, these supporters, that usually goes beyond what like a specific organization has wants to do, their like mission, their drive, their focus, right? And really connects to broader societal issues or concern that are like sort of front of mind for for everyday folks. An organization becomes a movement when it's long term and is really committed to ongoing and necessary sort of change and impact. And as you said, right, like it's sort of when it evolves outside of the grassroots, outside of one organization, and there are multiple folks holding multiple pieces. I think of when I was in the LGBTQ space, as that movement started to really formalize and grow, there was a direct action organization who was like holding sit-ins, blocking off freeways, right, like demanding action. 
there was the electoral arm where you and I were at the LGBTQ Victory Fund, where they were focused on specifically the electoral arm. There was HRC who was like tackling the big mainstream conversation around representation in the media and other places, right? And so there was a number of different organizations sort of tackling this place that it became much bigger than one individual and definitely one organization. So that's what we talk about when we think about when something becomes a movement, Yeah. And I also want to say this is sometimes where there can be issues when that happens, when something becomes a movement, you know, because these changes can also put the authenticity of the movement and frankly, the organizations that come out of that and also can create an argument about what the mission truly is. Getting that agreement takes a lot of time. So Martine, can you speak a bit about how you can maintain authenticity and mission and purpose when your organization sort of goes viral and like (laughs) blows up? It's a really good point, Ray, because I think some of these organizations grow so quickly that it doesn't give them a lot of time to really think about that, really understand when they're expanding as an organization, how to put their values at the core to that, how to make sure that they're putting their membership and those folks who are mostly impacted right at the center. How are they being inclusive, right, of everybody who could possibly be at the table around that, whatever the particular issue is. And it's really important to stay true to that original core of why or goal of why the organization was developed. Some ways to do this is to be adaptive and evolved thoughtfully and to know when mission creep is happening, right? To know that you're not getting pulled one way or another because there's a faction of the organization or there's a particular funding that you're trying to get, but really regularly sort of ground yourself and come back to that North Star of what are we trying to achieve in the long term? Is this the thing that the communities we are trying to serve and are impacted by this issue are needing in this moment? How do you continue to come back to that? And although you will often have to adapt and figure out new tactics, you really want to stay true to those core values. Joe, other tips you have? Emphasize the importance of feedback and actually having conversations. Don't assume that everyone agrees on what the mission is or knows what the mission is. Actually take the time quarterly at least every six months to really sit down and talk about the mission of the organization, make sure you get agreement and that you're not just chasing dollars and be able to give each other that honest feedback. You really need there to be an evaluation process on whether your actions and decisions are grounded in the purpose of the organization. Are you actually doing the thing that you said you were going to do or have you gone astray and do you need some sort of a compass or rudder to get you back? Usually those are the people around the table and you want to make sure that table is big enough that you have enough people to really who are a part of this to really have input and you constantly want to be asking for that input. And what I'll tell you is the bigger and faster a movement or an organization grows, the harder it is to do that. Oh, absolutely. And the more important it is to do that, right? Because I think we have seen in different spaces, organizations pop up and go away very quickly because their supporters, their membership, their volunteers, right? Their advocates 
saw that they weren't delivering on what they originally promised, right? And then vice versa, we have seen other organizations who have really sort of held true to their sort of core values and their mission. I think one of the groups we get to work with is uh, Stand Up America. And they started off as a Facebook group, right, of just folks post the 2016 presidential election when he who will not be named got elected. And they wanted to do something. And that sparked a larger organization who is still to this day dedicated to democracy reform, right? And so they continue to go back to their supporters realign their values, think about strategic planning, and in a regular interval to ensure that they are providing their supporters what they need and are going in the direction that their supporters are asking them to. Joe, other examples of folks that we've worked with on on how they, they're doing this well? There's so many, and that's we're lucky to be in this space. And you mentioned a bunch. I'll keep mentioning more, I think like a Giffords, Victory Fund, uh, Tobacco-Free Kids, even like a Mighty Earth, which is also an episode of the podcast this season. Folks are envisioning their view of movements in lots of different ways. And that's what I think is so incredible about the world right now is that, yes, there are a lot of problems, but also there's a great ability to take something, galvanize a group of people and make a change around it. And that can be really powerful and done in a thoughtful, planned way can mean for long term, really amazing change. So that to me is the great part about it. To go to those examples you mentioned, right, you don't know when this is going to happen. For former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, she wasn't intending on being a victim of gun violence, right, and now a survivor of gun violence, right? But because that happened and sparked a larger conversation, her and her husband and the rest of the folks over at Giffords were able to take that, I'd put it into the larger conversation around gun violence, build these supporters, build these organizations, continue to support survivors, continue to advocate for gun reform policy, right? They have expanded to now bringing gun owners who understand the need for sensible gun reform, right? So they have been able to really methodically and strategically build that grassroots organization into a now national organization that is making some really amazing impact, but it's because they continue to come back and ground themselves in their values and ground themselves in the folks that they are supporting and hopefully benefiting by the policy and the legislation and are keeping them at the center of the work that they're doing. And that is really incredible, amazing work. So Martine, tell us about today's interview. This seemed to go really well. And we had a really great guest and I want to hear more. So tell me about it. So Moms Demand Action, right, as an organization, and Angelo go into this, right, that also started from a very sudden and tragic gun violence incident, right, the Sandy Hook shooting that happened at an elementary school. And so Angela really takes us through and walks us through how that moment sparked moms across not only locally, but nationally, to understand that our children deserve to be able to go to school and be kids and not have to be afraid of gun violence happening. And how that then sparked a larger conversation, how they became a formalized organization. And now with Angela at the head of it, it's really a inspiring and hopeful conversation, particularly with such a emotional and intense issue area. Angela is the executive director there and has some great insight on how a group of moms came together to help create a movement. And it's really an amazing example of how this can go from one incident to 
a huge impactful voice at the national level. So stay tuned for that interview. We'll be right back. Hello, listeners, and we're back. Today, I am super excited about our guest today because it is somebody who inspires me, and I'm sure after you hear her, she will be inspiring you as well, my dear friend, Angela Farrell-Zavala. Angela is currently the executive director of Moms Demand Action, which is a grassroots movement of Americans fighting for public safety measures that can protect people from gun violence. She is a lifelong community organizer, passionate about bringing people together and a Washington, D.C.-based mom of four. She's worked on a number of causes that are important to her over the past 20 years, including women's rights, civil rights, LGBTQ+, and immigration, reproductive justice, racial justice, and education, and the list goes on. She joined Every Town for Gun Safety in 2019 as the Senior Vice President for Movement Building. And since then, she's had the opportunity to see the power of Moms Demand Action and Students Demand Action volunteers firsthand, and work on a number of important cultural and corporate and national programs and partnerships. Angela, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Martine, thank you. I'm so happy to be here for many reasons. This is an incredible (laughs) series that you're leading, but also you. You're amazing. You're a leader yourself. And as you said, we're good friends, and I'm just always great to chat with you. Of course, of course. So you have had quite the career in the advocacy space and and beyond and bringing people together. Can you just talk to our listeners about sort of your background, your community organizing, how that has shaped where you've gotten today? Yes. One thing I would say is that I tend to just jump in with both feet and not necessarily. So it wasn't that I mapped out a path for myself. I just found myself in many predicaments and decided this, you know, I literally organized my way out. But my biggest thing is um, growing up and, and really looking to my mother and my grandmother, who were incredible leaders in the community. We didn't come up of, had a lot of means, right? So my grandmother was a mother of 10 and raised those children primarily on her own. And my mom, I'm the oldest of three girls and my parents worked hard. We were working class family, making ends meet. And I never knew that we were really without. And they worked hard to make sure that we were comfortable. But one thing that I always saw is no matter what came to that community or to our family, what was put in front of us, my grandmother and my mother alike figured out ways to make things work, figured out ways to solve problems. And at an early age, that was a model for me that there was nothing too big, that was nothing was insurmountable, that we could not figure out. A memory that I have when we tie this back to politics is, uh, first of all, I was named after Angela Davis, so I think my mom set me up. So fire was in my belly. But I remember being about seven or eight years old and going to the voting booth with my mother. And I thought that I was voting. And she explained the whole thing from the the ride in the car there, why it was so important as she was doing it, the choices we were making. And I felt pretty empowered. And and what it it translated to me is that my voice mattered and all we have to do is raise it. And, And she was raising her voice through voting. She raised her voice through ensuring that her family was safe, through making sure that folks in the community, even outside of our family, were thriving. And so that's where it comes from. And I've had an opportunity, as you've noted, Martine, to work across many different issue areas, all of them, again, intersecting and much related. And I've just continued to just jump into activism and social justice because I believe that there's something that we can do about the problems that face us. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like when you come from limited means, your get out is right, like figuring it out. 
Yeah. And I think particularly when you work in organizations, we none of us have sort of unlimited resources that we could spend on our on our so it's really just taking that mindset that we learned as kids and being like, all right, here's what we got. Let's you get figure creative. It out. Like I got yeah. a paper clip, a shoestring, and a and some ramen. We're gonna do that. <laughs> right. Let's do it. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna build some impact. We're gonna make some impact. So this particular episode, we're talking about when moments become movements. And I think over the past couple of years, we have seen more and more of that. And unfortunately, in the gun violence space in particular, George Floyd and the movement that came out of that, can you talk us through sort of the moment that really sparked the beginning of Moms of Ban Action? Absolutely. So a decade ago, Sandy Hook massacre happened. And at that time, many people across the country were, how could this happen? Gun violence was not uncommon. These kinds of mass shootings, which are just 1% of our the total of gun violence in this country, but nonetheless, they strike communities in ways and they rip families apart. This was not something that we were seeing as regularly as we're seeing now. And when you see children in particular, it's something that people can't stomach. And so Shannon Watts, the founder of Moms Demand Action, happened to be at home that day, and this stopped her in her tracks. She's a mother of five. She saw this play out, and it just was disturbing, disgusting, upsetting, every emotion you can imagine. Instead of sitting in that emotion and just almost turning to like inertia, it was the opposite action. She's like, what can I do? And started a Facebook group. And little did she know that that would spark this movement, Moms and Men Action. And so from that, women came together and we like to say mothers and others because it's not just biological mothers, our mothers, our parents, not just women. We have all kinds of folks that come together to say, we're going to do something about this. So 10 years later, as we reflect back on that movement that was sparked, the political calculus has been changed in so many ways when we think about gun violence in this country. This was a third rail of politics. No one wanted to touch it. Even when we thought about now we, we assume that Democrats are strong on this issue. Even when we talked about Democrats a decade ago, there was still at least a quarter of them that were aligning with the NRA in many ways because it was the way that they got into office. And so that has changed. We also have volunteers that used to just get up to advocate for good policy are now writing that good policy. We've elected over 140 of our volunteers across the country, up and down you know, all levels of office. And so a lot has changed in that time. And it really has sparked people to ask the question, what can I contribute? What can I do about this? And it makes me think about my start and the fact that everyone has a voice and there's nothing too small to contribute. And that's where we are with Moms and Men Action today. That is fantastic. I mean, look at you, Aldi. I love Charles' strategy. My life, my heart lit up when you were like, oh, we're electing people. We're writing policy. Can you talk to me a little bit about how did that particular moment, and unfortunately, I would imagine other moments since in the past decade, right, continue to guide the direction of the organization, what you all are doing, the strategy you all are implementing? Yeah, unfortunately, Martine, we are not only a, an organization full of incredible powerhouses, people that get up every day to do this work, we have an incredible amount of survivors amongst us. And so what does that mean? That means with every single tragedy, many unseen or unpublished, you're not reading about them in a newspaper or seeing it play out um, in real time on the on news. These folks get up every single day. They've turned their pain into purpose. And what we do is we want to center the folks that are most disproportionately impacted. We want to make sure that we're hearing from survivors and folks that have are actually walking this path of coming from loss. How do they recover? How do they 
heal from this and how do they fight like hell to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else? So a lot of that is taken into consideration every time we're approaching our strategies for whether it's very local to federal, we're constantly really thinking about this and asking, are we doing everything possible to tackle this? We also have learned a lot in that time. We know that we're not the only ones. Frankly, ten a decade is a, uh, is a blip when you think about just the history of this country and movements and everything else. So there have been people long before Moms and Men Action came along that have been doing this work. In particular, I just want to note communities of color, particularly mm-hmm. Black community and Black women that have been leading on this before it was an issue that anybody cared to talk about before there was any shine, before there was any even public profile or any media opportunity to discuss this, they have been working in their communities and continue to do that. So I also see them and look to them. And as an organization, we really want to focus on partnering, making sure that we have everyone possible because we have to address this from every single angle because this public health crisis impacts all of us, some groups disproportionately like black and brown communities. So that is where we are. I think the way we look at gun violence has also shifted in the decade. So again, the spark was a school shooting. I told you that's less than 1% of the uh, total of gun violence in this country. We look at domestic violence and intimate partner violence. We look at suicide prevention. We look at unintentional shootings that often happen when there's an unsecured firearm that's available. And also those unsecured firearms are often When we think about school shootings or or gunfire on school grounds, 80% of those are coming from homes that uh, firearms unsecured. So we're looking at this in such holistic ways from the political to the electoral and policy to also the culture shift. How do we start to break the culture around guns in this country in a way that this is not a go-to. It's not an inevitable. It's not just that it just happens. This is not normal, y'all. This is not normal. This is a uniquely American problem. I often hear things about mental health and everything under the book, except the fact that it's the gun. We have other countries that have the same level of problems when it comes to mental health or societal issues, but this is not where they land. And so we are constantly evaluating that and trying to be stronger and be better partners and get out in this world and and really flex the solutions, the common sense data-driven solutions that we come up with in community to make sure that we're tackling this problem. It is not normal, nor do we have to accept it. No, we sure don't. So we talk to our listeners a lot about how do you utilize unique or perspective or powerful messengers, right? And so like as a mom, right, as a woman of color, can you talk to us a little bit about how empowering and how has it strengthened your all's ability to communicate by utilizing particularly moms, but others as well, women of color? What does that look like when you all implement that strategy or those voices? Yeah, I think it's really important, Martine, because none of us know everything, but together we know a lot. And so if we are not looking across and being more inclusive, bringing diverse voices and experiences in, we actually have a lot of blind spots and we can't afford those when we think about tackling this problem. Our opposition has spent over three decades getting us in this place. And so it's going to take all of us to get out. So I do think the more that we have a variety of voices that are tackling this problem are visible. It's really important. I'll give you a couple of examples. I think, you know, of course, the obvious is representation matters. So me, especially sitting at the helm of this organization as a black woman, a mother of four children means that 
there are ways and experience and understandings that I have that are going to contribute to a, a strategy and doing that in partnership with other leaders of color and folks that are in the trenches on this issue. But it's also true when you're going to, I spent some time in rural places or in other, you know, red and blue states, but I was in Nashville post the covenant shooting and I got a chance to speak and be with faith leaders, got a chance to be with some of the folks that were directly impacted by that horrific tragedy that were also, I said, people of faith, gun owners, more conservative. And that is important because then we understand how to authentically speak to a variety of audiences. Again, this impacts all of us, direct, indirect. This is a public health crisis in this country. So we need everyone to jump in to help to fix it. But we also understand that there are unique ways that this impacts different communities. And in order to come to strategies that are going to really bring material change to those different communities and those individuals, we need to have those people as part of this movement. So I think it's important to make sure that we're having those conversations, that we have those representations so that we are getting every angle of the strategy that we can. Again, because when we talk about the stat that this is a leading cause of death for children, young adults and teens in this country, there is no way that that needs to be. There's, it makes zero sense. And so I need everybody to step up to the plate. That means we need to bring everybody in. I've had the honor and the privilege to work with a number of CVI organizations. We work with Giffords on their yes. sort of gun owners for common sense gun reform and their survivors program. And you're right. It is a thing that we do not have to accept it. It's an absolutely a thing that needs to change. And we all have to take part in changing it, right? Like it has to yes. be a cultural shift to say no more. Absolutely. No more. And even if it's just you, you have to say no more. (laughs) Yeah. And and sometimes it will feel like just you. This is one thing that I have noticed when, and it's what I love. And it's the organizer in me when I get to go and travel across the country. Most of the time people are like, aren't you tired in the flight? Sure. That's, you know, flights canceled, delayed. That's, that sucks. But what do I get to do? I get to meet and be in the field. I get to be in community with the folks that are leading this work, incredible folks. And so there's nothing too small. There's nothing too small. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to be a policy expert. You don't even have to know what we're going to do it, you know, next week. All you have to do is put one foot in front of the other and know that this is unacceptable. This is not normal. This is not an act of nature. There are actual common sense approaches we can be taking to solve this problem together. So I think anyone can step in and, and roll up their sleeves and help out. That one step in front of another is like That's the one. key to organizing, right? Like yes. that, is, <laughs> that is it. Can you talk to us a little bit about the values that your organization really sort of centers as you all are doing this movement work? Yeah. So there's several things and I've mentioned some already. We really want to first and foremost, we understand that we have so many survivors of gun violence in this country. It's a club that no one ever asked to sign up for. And so I think we value the input and experience of people that have been impacted by gun violence in this country. That's number one. Number two, and very closely aligned with this, is that the communities most disproportionately impacted or have the greatest impacts, we need to hear from them. So partnership is so important to us because we realize that while we are not going to be able to do it all, we should not be doing it all. We are part of an ecosystem and all of us have something to contribute. And so the closer we work in collaboration, the better we're going to be when it comes to tackling this really difficult entrenched issue in our country. We are data driven. So we know there are lots of approaches that 
are proven to save lives. And this is why we get so upset when we're driving policy in different places and we're getting really entrenched extremist lawmakers that are just turning a blind eye literally to this because we know that these data-driven approaches are going to save lives every day. So we always center that. We always ask ourselves, is there more we can be doing? Is there more to do? Are we seeing it from all angles? I think, and this is much to organizing, is that you always have to kind of come back and really take some inventory. You got to look at yourself. Am I in the spaces I need to be? Am I too much over here, too little here? Am I showing up right? So there's constant reflection that's really important to make sure that we are developing the strategies in partnership with others that are going to help. You know, losing forward as a value, I think. There's many of things that we test and try. We know things that are going to work, but sometimes you throw something out there and you may not get the result you may have planned, but you get something. You get something back that helps you to really recalibrate so that you're able to kind of be successful for the next thing. So those are just a few of the things that we are. And then young leaders. Oh my goodness. I didn't say enough about this. I was going to say. Young people are so incredibly important. And I don't like when I hear people say emerging or come, they already are leaders in their community. And when you think about the fact that this is impacting them disproportionately, they're sitting in school drills that are traumatizing. They are literally going to funerals of their friends. We want to hear from them and they are fired up and ready. And we should be working in collaboration on strategy and also supporting the strategy that they're leading. And so that's very important to us as well. I could go, I could be here all day. You don't have time for the whole list, but those are just a few of the things that are really important to us. As you mentioned, we try and we test and sometimes we fail, but sometimes we succeed. And I think very often the media, I mean, I know I wake up to it on my phone, on my news alerts, right? very often just focus on the incident, right? That's right? The actual shooting. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the victories you all have seen, like some of the progress that has been made and maybe a couple of the like challenges that we are currently looking at and looking at ahead. Yes. Thank you for asking that. So I said something to this effect earlier is that with this incredible network of folks that have rolled up their sleeves to do the hard work in their communities of stopping the next tragedy from happening, figuring out how we're thinking forward about ending gun violence completely in this country. Many of those folks that started off as not thinking they had enough to do what they needed to to tackle this problem, we have been able to help support to run for office. So we have had over 140 volunteers that have run and won uh, in the 22 midterms, right? That's something to be really excited about. And, you know, there was a thought that there was going to be a red wave. And what we got was a wave of Moms and Men Action shirts as our volunteers, and they stepped into the arena and ran for office. So we're so proud of that. And because of that, this goes to the next point, Having our gun sense champions and leaders is so critical. So helping to really vote those folks in, get them elected, because what that translates to in policy and legislation is like immeasurable in many ways, but we'll measure a little bit. (laughs) So we have uh, states like Michigan, Maryland, Minnesota, Illinois, Colorado that have done incredible work. Anything from having background checks on all gun sales and purchases, making sure that they're prohibiting domestic abusers from having guns, 
Extreme risk protection orders are important. Safe storage and secure storage laws are very important. And I cannot, it would be ridiculous for me to have this conversation without naming that we broke the nearly 30-year logjam in Congress by passing last summer the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is the most significant federal gun safety legislation in a generation, which was really incredible. Um, I'm sure our listeners are clapping. Yes, please clap for that. Uh, And that was a huge step forward. I think there was a lot that's been done in partnership with with groups across the country, particularly those that are state-based and are really focused on black and brown communities to make sure that their investments back into those communities. So violence interruption groups are able to be resourced so they can do the important work that they're doing and leading their communities every day. So those are just some examples of things that we have been helping to lead and partner on that have been able to pass, which is great. And I didn't even name 10 states plus the District of Columbia have assault weapons bans, which we are going to keep pushing on that. Um, Challenges, ooh, we can name many, but I think, you know, I still feel that the good news outweighs the bad. I think the hard part about this, which I'm sure you can relate to, is with any movement, what we end up seeing is extremist lawmakers mm-hmm. that are beholden to a gun lobby or whatever your movement is, fill in the lobby they're beholden to, that are not listening to and protecting the American people. They're not protecting the will and what the needs of the people are with very, very simple life-saving policy and digging in. And so it makes it really difficult for us because it's a oftentimes a small and very vocal minority that is pushing in many of the states that are fueling the the fear, holding out on doing the things that are going to make us safe, that we know are proven to make us safe. So that's really difficult. What is difficult about this is sometimes when you think about organizing and movements, that can make people feel helpless. When the reality is we are everything we need, we are the majority when it comes to what should be done in this country, we are the majority opinion of keeping our communities safe, making sure that we're thriving, making sure that our children can learn, can play in playgrounds, can go to wherever they need to without the fear of losing our children. And that is the majority of the country, but that's not how you would feel when you look and see politicians that are really in the pockets of the gun lobby here. But this is also why you need to take your outrage about this and frustration to the ballot box, because we have to reject these extremists who are putting profit above safety, which are also trying to get in the way of us voting, by the way. Let's just plug that. We need to make sure that we are showing up and showing out and getting them out. If they're not going to do their job, get out of the way so that we can do what we need to keep our community safe. I get so excited to hear leaders talk about all sides of that organizing triangle. And it sounds like you all are really thinking about, right, like, how do you build that grassroots sort of public movement where you're utilizing community and you're utilizing individuals? Those individuals are then using the elections to run for office, or we're utilizing those grassroots organizers to hold those folks accountable by like voting and running for office. And then when they get in office, we're utilizing them to actually write good public policy, right? Like you need to use all sort of sides of this triangle. And it sounds like you all are doing this as, as well as is continuing to build that ladder of leadership, right? Like continuing yes. to invest in those folks so that so important. they come in as a volunteer, then they're doing something more, right? Then they decide they're running for office, then they're an elected official. And so you build that pipeline for folks so that we are getting the folks that we want in office who are doing it because 
they understand our needs and they understand That's the community right. needs and, and they're saying no more to this, right? And so yes. it's also about sustaining a movement. You cannot keep people in the same place. You're an organizer too. You understand what that feels like. You want to feel like you're constantly, there's something you can contribute that you're being challenged enough, but you have some wins to count. Like it can't be all like banging head against the wall. You have to see what you're able to contribute, see what we've, we're winning and where we can be. And so I think that's really important. Absolutely. Any final piece of experience advice for our listeners on how do they, if they are looking at something that they are concerned about, start to garner support around it? The first thing is to trust yourself. That's the number one thing, because I know as a regular human being that is a a human being in real life, (laughs) that sometimes I think about these big feeling unyieldly problems and like, how do I alone tackle it? It's just impossible. I'm looking at the news. This is hard. I don't have enough time in the day. But really, like I said earlier, all it takes is one foot in front of the other. And whatever you can contribute, no matter how small it may seem, is going to be important in getting us to where we need to be. Once you figure yourself out and say, look, I'm going to give what I can and and hold that and own that and be okay with that. The next step is like, how do I start to talk about this with other people that I trust and care about to really talk about why and, and see if I can get them to kind of jump in with me. But one of the things, Martine, that's been like, I think a gift for me is the times that I'm able to have conversations with people that I wouldn't otherwise think I would have a good conversation with. Or, you know, frankly, we all have this where we make a judgment about what somebody thinks based on a whole lot of things that may not even add up to like the reality. But I've gone and I've talked to some people that might be very conservative in places where I would assume they don't have values aligned with mine. And at the end of the day, I've had the most fruitful conversations because we get to a place of what is it that we need and want? What are the common things that we have? And I will tell you, more often than not, we land in a similar place, even though we may be approaching from different places, or there might be fears that they're holding, or things they're believing, and the same with me. And I think it's really important to make sure that you are accessing all kinds of people, even folks that you wouldn't necessarily think are aligned with you, because it's going to take all of us hitting this from all angles to tackle this problem, to get to where we need to go. And you will be surprised at how much you may have in common. I think one of the things we're seeing nowadays is this, especially with as beautiful as the internet is and social media, what has happened is that we're oftentimes in bubbles and we don't get to have these interactions with each other. And you will find so many amazing resources and allies and possibility with just having a conversation with someone that may be a little different than you are. So that's where I thrive. That's where I get some of my best moments and my best connections and resources is from those conversations. So don't be afraid to do that. I think it's important. Absolutely. Relationships are key. Yes. Last question. We ask this to all of our guests. Any books, podcasts, TV shows, movies that you're Ooh. digging into right now that uh, you would recommend for our listeners? This work is hard. When you're thinking about something like gun violence, all we're seeing and feeling is loss. And so I think in order to sustain our people, and for me in particular, I've got to plug into outlets and ways of accessing joy because that's still possible and quite necessary, right? What do I do? I like to get a a nice comfy blanket. I get in that very, I have like an L-shaped couch. I like to get in that little corner, get my remote, turn on the television. What reality show can I just watch right now? Can I just float away into nonsense for a little bit? You know, one of the funniest things is like, I love that reality show. There's many, but The Circle, 
I'm so fascinated by the circle because it's pretty relatable. And as somebody that is not always like accessing social media, it's so interesting to kind of see how people like what their strategies are. It's just like so cool. You meet these interesting personalities. So I like to jump into reality television and just kind of like float away. And it helps me to recharge so that I can get up the next day and do what I need to tackle this incredibly huge problem that, by the way, is not insurmountable. But that's one of the things that I do to just kind of unplug. Absolutely. Absolutely. Self-care is key. Yes, it certainly is. It certainly is. And music, of course. I'm always blasting music and dancing around. Yes. And embarrassing my children. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So if folks wanted to get in touch with either you to continue to be inspired or if they wanted to get and volunteer or get in touch with Moms Demand Action, how would they do that? Sure. If you want to follow me and maybe you'll see me dancing sometime, it's at Pharrell Zabala. That's F-E-R-R-E-L-L. Z-A-B-A-L-A. At Pharrell Zabala is my Instagram. Also at Pharrell Zabala is my Twitter. So you can follow me there. 64433. I want you to text that. Text ready if you want to jump in and join us. What will happen is, like I said, nothing's too small. Someone will call you that's in your community and say hello, welcome you and see what it is that you want to do, how we can help you and what you would like to contribute, if any. So Text ready to 64433 and we got you. We want to bring you in. Again, it's going to take all of us to get through this problem, this public health crisis in this country. And so I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk to you today and thankful to everybody that's doing everything they can every day on this and other issues because they all are related. I really appreciate you all. We will make sure we'll put that in the show notes of how you get in contact. Angela, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. You continue to inspire me and I can't imagine that you didn't inspire the listeners on this episode today. We are so, so happy to have you on. Thank you for having me, Martine. Good to see you. Likewise. All right, we'll be right back. And we're back. So one, I'm super grateful that Angela was on with us. I think one, she's in and of herself a quite inspiring leader, but also to hear her talk about the evolution of Moms Demand Action and how that sort of closely follows a number of organizations that we've mentioned on this episode. I think some of the big takeaways I heard from her was really just that story of how amazing it was and inspiring it was for such a tragedy to turn into right this national conversation where Bombs Demanded Action started out as a Facebook group of concerned parents and specifically concerned moms around the safety of their kids in schools and and how that has transformed over the past 10 years. On the good side, we're making some progress. On the bad side, we're still fighting it after 10 years. But to hear her talk about the ability to sort of continue to center those folks that are impacted, right? Like those moms, those students, staying true to their values is really showing us the right way of doing it, the right way of continuing to be grounded and held accountable by the folks that you are determined to serve and and why the organization exists. And I think the really powerful piece of that was the continued sort of centering of storytelling of survivors in the movement. And as she mentioned, right, like turning that that horrific pain that I could never imagine, right, into purpose and how important it is to really move folks to that place of action as a way to make impact and and hopefully stop this from happening to anybody else, any other mother or or child, right, in school and continuing to center so those folks who were disproportionately impacted and 
as we continue to fight, right, I think keeping those tips and pieces of advice that Angela gave are going to be critical. And we're continuing to see it, right? Like these moments turn into organizations. What tips or suggestions, advice do you have for these folks who are trying to start these organizations and get them off the ground? One, it's know that this stuff takes time and be there to support the impacted population and make sure that you're providing a support network and engagement for them because having folks tell their stories is really hard work. Having people get involved in a movement takes a lot of emotional power and takes time. So understand that and understand what people can give may be different. The time that people can give, the amount of emotion people can give may be different. But then also – as we're moving from a movement into an organization, know that that is a different sort of place and a different process. Again, I talked about this idea of storming, forming, norming, that there takes an emotional toll to build something and then it's a different process to keep it moving. So thinking about the planning and the mission and the finances of a real organization also sometimes takes a different skill set than the initial movement that was built. The other piece to remember, right, is particularly if you're a person who is being engaged for the first time, right, or you're engaging folks for the first time, really taking a look at sort of what already exists out there and making sure that as you were creating these organizations, right, as you were developing these new things, as Joe mentioned, right, it is not easy. It is an emotional toll, a financial toll, right, a physical toll to pull an organization from scratch, but making sure that you're filling a gap, right? Like there are other organizations in a lot of these movement spaces who are doing really incredible work. And so how are you aligning alongside them, complementing what they're doing, sort of increasing their impact and not sort of duplicating? There's enough space to go around in a lot of these movements and, and to ensure that whether you're doing it locally, whether you're doing it for a particular sort of lane that isn't being filled at the moment to really ensure that you are doing your, your due diligence Again, I think we're often pitted against one another for resources, for importance of issue, right, for getting in front of legislators, for getting in front of media, and we shouldn't be, right? Like that should not be what the norm is, and, and Angela talks about that, right, and, and just making sure that that you, as you are creating these new organizations, it, it, is, it is because you're filling a gap and not duplicating work. Absolutely. And then the idea of evaluating your movement and your organization mm -hmm. to make sure you're changing the strategies when needed or that you're staying on mission and that you're agreeing on what that mission is, is also important to make sure you're making the impact that you intended to make. It was an awesome interview, Martine. I'm so glad you did it. Yeah, agreed. And so thanks, folks, for tuning in to today's episode. If you have questions or comments about movement building, be sure to check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. Our information can be found in the episode description, and we look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, and be sure to like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia. And Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to Win a Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.